Welcome to this week's episode of the HS Health Tech Podcast. My name is James, one of the founders of HS, and this week I'm joined by Tanya Bowler, who's the co-founder and CEO of LV, which is a health and lifestyle brand developing smarter technology for women. So LV essentially takes the best of medical technology and turns it into premium consumer products that women love to use. So together with her co-founder, who's Alex Asaley, the co-founder of Jawbone, Tanya's actually raised over $50 million in investment. And most recently, their $42 million Series B round, which was led by IPGL and supported by Octopus Ventures and Impact Ventures UK. So they've got a couple of products. Their first one is the LV Trainer, which is to help women train their pelvic floors. And that's now sold in major retailers like Nordstrom and John Lewis. And their latest product is the LV Pump, which is a breast pump that actually made its debut on the catwalk at London Fashion Week. So on the podcast, you'll hear Tanya and I talk about her really interesting background. So she came from sort of UN policy and made her way into entrepreneurship from there. Uh, it's another podcast where we talk about the importance of design in health tech. Um, we talk about how to completely reimagine um, a B2C launch of a medical device and also the ever-growing femtech space in health. So, as always, you can get in touch with us at HS Venture on Twitter and hs.ventures on Instagram. Enjoy the podcast. So, Tanya, welcome. How are you doing this morning? Very well, James. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Awesome. So, Tanya, I know that we've had a phone call before, so I know a little bit about your background, but why don't you tell us all about it for our listeners? Yeah, so one Tanya and I started a company called LV over five years ago. It's a women's health technology company. Before then, I had never worked in the private sector, had never even worked in tech, but my background was very much in sexual reproductive health. I have a PhD from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in HIV and teenage pregnancy. Uh, before I started LV, I was at Mary Stokes International, which is the largest private provider of women's health services where I was global director of evidence strategy and innovation. So I was leading all the functions around knowledge management, impact analysis, research. And really my career up to that point had all been around how to bring about change with ministries of health. So bringing about changes in health policy by using uh, research and randomized controlled trials. So I've always really been passionate about health promotion. It's what I'm still passionate about now. I suppose what's really changed between working in the non-for-profit sector and now having my own tech company was around how we can bring about that change and recognizing the huge potential of technology to disrupt health. So going from policy and government to the startup world, I mean, that must have been like night and day in terms of the speed of change and, and how to get things done. I mean, it's a similar journey that, that I took really going from the sort of NHS side anyway, um, into more of the, the startup innovation side. But yeah, what, what was that like? What was the difference? Yeah, well, you know what it's like, James. I mean, when you're in your 20s, you're just so idealistic. So, you know, in theory, the idea of going and changing policy at a major scale through using evidence-based decision-making, you know, it all sounds great. But yeah, as you pointed out, it was, it was just mind-numbingly slow. And for me, you know, my dream job had been to actually work for the United Nations. And I went to work there. And, um, you know, it's, just, it's quite sort of Kafka-esque in, in how overly bureaucratic it is and how we couldn't make any decisions and they had to move so slowly 
But worse than that, particularly working on taboo issues and sexual reproductive health, the UN is actually the worst place to work because we couldn't even say the word sex. So, you know, at that time we were sort of promoting health prevention messages in Africa, telling people just not to have sex and to abstain. So, um, yeah, it was very frustrating. And I think at heart, I've always been an entrepreneur, so I, I do like to move quickly. So I was getting really frustrated. Came back to the UK, though. Mary Soaps is a great organisation, though, because it's kind of a hybrid model of uh, running services for profit and also then running charitable services for the poor. And it sort of has a lot of, it's very entrepreneurial. So there, when I was heading uh, innovation, I had a lot more scope to sort of start trying out new stuff. And that's when we were looking much more at mHealth, and bringing in a lot more on the tech side. So that kind of when I got my taster for how we could just move so much quick, so much faster with tech, I suppose. Mm. So you actually, actually had a, a dip into digital health even while you were at your previous job before you then got into LV. Yeah, exactly. And also because I was heading innovation at Mary Stokes, you know, even in contraceptive technology, we had, uh, you know, we were the largest contraceptive provider globally, but most of our contraceptive services were based on permanent method, methods such as sterilization and uh, IUDs, where there'd been kind of a new wave of uh, much more user-friendly contraceptive technology. So I had experience of what it was like when old tech was being disrupted by new tech and how much resistance there, there was to that. But that if, you know, what I saw at Mary Stokes was that if you provided a new tech that made life so much easier for women, then the uptake could be really, really fast. And even though I didn't know that at the time, that was very much the context for when I started thinking about uh, what ends up being LB Trainer, our first product. When I looked at the issue around pelvic floor health, there were really a lot of similarities with other areas in sexual reproductive health. Mm. So at its core then, you just wanted to solve a problem. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, I, I thought myself quite an expert in sexual reproductive health, had written two books, had a PhD, had a fancy title and then well it's when I was pregnant myself though and it was going through that experience and suddenly realizing like wow like there was so much money and attention around HIV and contraception and population issues but just day-to-day -day issues to do with womanhood you know fertility pregnancy postnatal menopause menstruation they just were even more taboo in some ways and completely ignored um, and yeah when I started reading about pelvic floor health exactly as you said it was about there's this huge epidemic for women. You know, one in three women have got stress urinary incontinence, which is preventable and treatable through simple education and exercise. You know, in some ways, a much easier ask than asking people not to have sex as not to get HIV in Africa. And yet people still weren't doing it. Um, so yeah, for me, it was like, well, there's this problem. How are we going to solve it? So I went about talking to health professionals, to women's health physios, to urogynies, to a lot of women, um, trying to understand, obviously, what were the barriers to why women weren't looking after their pelvic floor when it had such important health benefits. And really it came down to lack of confidence uh, on how to exercise. It came down to the fact that nobody wants to say it, but doing a pelvic floor exercise is actually really boring. And third, women just gave up because they never saw any improvement. Um, so yeah, I looked at the problems. And I thought, well, how can we solve these? Um, I jumped, you know, as is in my DNA, straight to kind of a typical service model, which is what you had in France. So I looked into the idea of providing additional health services to support women earlier uh, on their health journey, but then kind of quite quickly realized, actually, women don't need to go and see a health professional for this. They should just, if they had the right tools, i.e. technology, should be able to just do this at home. So that was, yeah, very much the genesis for the LV Trainer.
So you didn't actually think to begin with that you were going to create a medical device or a consumer device or anything like that. What you did was you ended up going into this sort of listening phase of just asking everybody about the problem, realized that it was these three things. So, you know, low confidence on how to actually improve your pelvic floor, the exercises are boring and people don't see improvement. So they give up. And then you, so you tried this service model. Yeah. What what did that look like that, that you tried? Yeah, I mean, because at heart, you know, obviously I'm in health promotion and behavior change, and I suppose having worked in HIV prevention, for me, it was all about, similar to what I saw happen with the HIV epidemic, how we saw, you know, how in the 80s, AIDS was uh, portrayed as a highly stigmatized disease. It was a death sentence. There were a lot of pictures of people dying, uh, and obviously that was reflective of the current situation at that time, but how the language was able to change and switch into something a bit more positive, even by switching from AIDS to HIV and living, people living with HIV and having more open conversations about it by bringing it into the mainstream. So for me, even when I looked at the service model, it was again thinking, you know, fundamentally my belief is women should be thinking about their pelvic floor uh, as much as they do as any other part of their health and wellness. And if women are spending a lot of time, for example, even now going, um, so basically one of the taboo issues is the vagina, right? We can't even say the word, Mm. Uh, women don't think about it, but then what we see the change culturally over the last five years has been more on the outside, so on the beauty aesthetic level. So women you know, increasingly maybe wanting to have waxing or um, going to beauty salons. So actually my thinking was if women are spending time thinking about the outside of their bodies and not the inside, uh, maybe we should you know, try and target them where they already are. So basically I was looking at whether or not we could even uh, bring it into beauty salons. So looking at how to, to, to turn it into uh, a place where women would normally go and have a normal conversation about wellness or even in gyms rather than having to go and see a doctor. That was about six years ago. Um, and funny enough, actually right now, I know the NHS is, is trying to do a similar thing, trying to get smear tests into beauty salons where women are going for waxing. You know, I think the idea is to try and target uh, a, a moment where a woman is already having a conversation with another woman about an intimate part of their health. So that was the idea. Um, I did spend six months looking at it, and obviously I didn't really have much of a commercial background, but the more I understood how the mechanics and of building an actual you know, commercially sustainable business worked, I, I actually quite quickly realized that it would be really hard to scale. And um, mm. I kind of had to give up on it, which is, as with anything, actually, it was actually quite heartbreaking when I'd spent quite a long time working on it. Um, but that's what you ultimately have to do, right? If you really want to innovate, you have to be prepared to have your ideas uh, be wrong and break them down. But at the same time, I'd kind of had been thinking about this tech and just, you know, reading through the clinical trials and realizing that there was clear evidence from the NICE guidelines that biofeedback was shown to work. And yet the tech that exists in hospitals was just horrible. And, um, you know, the simple idea was why can't we just turn that into something women want to use at home? Mm. Yeah, that is really interesting to me because the problem really to begin with was normalizing the pelvic floor. Yeah. That, that was, that was what you actually had to do because even thinking about this now, you know, even if you were to have, you know, decided straight away, look, I'm just going to build this tech and then I'm just going to throw it out there and I'm going to put it in yeah. GP practices or I'm going to put it in clinics or blah, 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 in this like heavily, you know, medicalized version of it. That's not a fertile environment for, forgive the pun, for that to actually develop as a product. You know, it's not, it, yeah, yeah. The, the biggest problem was actually getting people talking about this as a means of creating a fertile ground in order to actually 
proliferate the information that's required to solve the problem and the conversations that are required to spread the knowledge of something like this. You know, it, it seems like the environment really, and I imagine that that's a, an ongoing issue. Yes, it is. And, you know, at the time I didn't realize it, but we were innovating, not just with the tech and the product, but even the way we talked about pelvic floor, shifting the conversation, trying to bring it out in the open. Um, but I suppose I just sort of knew it in, intrinsically uh, and that the technology is just a tool so for me the bigger mission is about changing attitudes and the way women think about their health so LB trainer really allows women to do that because they're understanding their body in a way they didn't before mm. um, but yeah now that obviously I'm five years in and it's a commercial success and I've learned all the nuts <laughs> and bolts of building a business obviously it, in retrospect yeah it makes perfect sense and when you create a new category of product you need to create demand um, around that. So that, that's what we do. And obviously the challenge is how to do that in a way which, uh, where the ROI is okay. And um, because ultimately the long-term market size for public health is huge, but because as you pointed out, there's kind of the attitudes are, are still uh, negative around it. And because women don't even know, you know there's an education gap. Um, it'll, it'll take all of us working in this field a while to get there. Exactly. So let's talk about that product then. So where you're, where we are in the story so far is that obviously you've, you've tried the service model, it hasn't worked and you've, mm -hmm. you've turned your eye to technology. So talk to me about how you developed the tech, the art, mm -hmm. you know, where the idea actually came from of the design and things like that and, and how you first brought it to market. Yeah. So I kind of, again, sometimes I think with innovation, it's great to come from a different field because you can question some of the, the, uh, long-standing assumptions and I think looking back I was also quite naive and I just didn't understand how hard some of this engineering stuff was which I now appreciate greatly but um yeah I basically looked at what exists in the hospital and I just thought as a user I wouldn't want to use that um as in the vaginal probes were um big and painful to use you had to be hooked up with electrodes and then there's this big clunky machine and that you could look at your pelvic floor in in motion in real time on the screen so simple level, I was like, well, how can we turn that into, you know, how would I want to use it? So literally starting with a blank piece of paper. I'm busy. Most of the women with pelvic problems are mums like me. We don't want to be lying on a bed with our knees up. I want to be able to walk around, brush my teeth, stand up. And this was obviously also based on what women were telling us. Um, so really starting from a women-centered point of view. Um, obviously, as I'm a researcher, I was, uh, wanted it to be evidence-based. But what was really shocking was how little evidence there was in some of this area. So even the vaginal anatomy, even though 51% of the population in the UK have, have this part of the anatomy, there'd been really very little studies on it, like four or five, and they were fairly um, rudimentary type of studies. So we literally had to go and recruit a lot of women because we knew that women are all different shapes and sizes. So we had to have over 100 women testing the product. We knew it had to be comfortable, it had to be easy to use because those were the, that was the main barrier to use. Um, so I went, as I said, came up really with a blank piece of paper as a non-engineer, non-product designer, just thinking what would the ideal look like? Uh, now what I know about product design is that's always quite ambitious to, to completely redesign every aspect. Normally you just choose one USP, but I think given that there was nothing on the market that, that came even close to what women wanted, it was fine to kind of rip up the, the playbook. And then, yeah, sort of kind of yeah works out what the product was I think one of those eureka moments that we do sometimes have was when I sort of recognized that the sensors that was being used in the biofeedback devices in hospitals which was electromyography which was picking up electrical current activity in order to measure as a proxy uh, pelvic floor strength 
that basically had very low interday reliability and validity. So basically even the sensors that were being used in women's health were kind of from the dark ages. And the Eureka moment was literally, I was just reading The Economist one night about six years ago and um, reading about this you know, new wave of wearable tech and how these new sensors like the triops accelerometer, which were gonna be used in products like the Fitbit or Jawbone and the kind of what potential they had in terms of giving biofeedback in real time. And it was just sort of thinking, well, why can't we just take these advances in sports tech and just apply them to women's health tech? And that was kind of a, again, a sort of moment of, well, why can't we just try that out? Um, but actually, in retrospect, because there's been so little investment and in research in women's health tech, that actually it's quite easy to make those innovation transfers, even with our second product. We've, you know, done that, managed to grab innovation from a different field and just apply it to women's health. Um, so, yeah, came up really with a, an idea at that point was still just sort of grabbing friends and family to help me out trying to work out if I knew anybody who's an engineer and then somebody had told me that they won an innovation grant from the government so I was like oh that sounds good I'm going to apply for that I took two days off work and kind of three days in <laughs> realized I didn't even know what the questions meant <laughs> so it took a bit longer but the amazing thing was basically I won 100 grand from Innovate UK and that was really the moment when I was like wow actually you know, a panel of health tech experts have reviewed this and they think it's got potential to it. It's not just a crazy idea in my head. Um, so that's when I quit my job and started raising money and, and building the team. Amazing. So this is another really great example. Um, we have so many people on this podcast that, at the moment that are that are saying the same thing and, and exercising the same sort of method of bringing health tech devices and other things to reality, which is get the evidence you know stay stay academic even for that 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 early bit and just make sure that you've got the evidence behind what you do because people are leveraging that clinical credibility and then handing it over to the consumer and then just blowing everything else out the water that's that's already out there that hasn't been through that through that evidence rigor and you know even the kind of regulatory rigor as well because i imagine that you know it's a medical device right i imagine a class two medical device that this would have to be and i think you know bringing bringing all of that behind it and all that power behind it and then giving it to, to the consumer, you know, consumers these days that, that are out there looking for, for the best things to use. And, you know, consumers aren't stupid. Consumers are going to find the evidence behind these things. They're going to, they're going to respond to that. And, and actually it's going to mean that you're making them more impact, which is what seemingly you're massively driven by. Absolutely. And yeah, that's exactly the case. And I think, you know, in me, in my DNA, I'm always strong on the research side of being evidence-based, but having worked with governments and, had the frustration of you know running multi-million RCTs that took years and uh, yeah it was a sense of exactly what you said you need the evidence in order to design the best product so you need strong scientific uh, and clinical backbone to what you do as well as IP but absolutely when you market and sell this product it needs to be on the consumer side I mean you have a choice right I think the new generation of us who are working in health tech we can either do the traditional model sell medical devices through health systems or we can go direct to consumer because we know, uh, particularly for those of us working more in consumer personal health and prevention, there's less and less money within those formal health systems. It's, it's difficult to access. You can't do it both ways. And as we also know, individuals are increasingly spending more money on their own health and wellness. So that's kind of very much the, the space that we're playing in. But that said, our product is, because it, the technology is better than what exists in hospitals and because it is evidence-based and based on the NICE guidelines, we've actually won an NHS supply chain agreement. So our product is also available in the NHS. So we, we managed to sort of somehow um, run both in parallel, both kind of 
winning the hearts and minds of consumers, but also building it up in, in a traditional uh, medical device way. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because this tends to be the way around that it does work because, you know, for NHS organizations that require and, and rightly so require a heck of a lot of evidence that something actually works and that something does deliver return on their investment. It is up to entrepreneurs of, of health tech companies to actually get their products into different markets in order to get that, that data and that evidence that this is something that is helping patients. Yeah, pelvic for health as well is it, it is, when you think about wellness, as we know, it's physical health, uh, cognitive, sexual, emotional, these are all the different components. And nothing epitomizes it more really than pelvic floor health because what you see with women is it's very emotional and uh, psychological as well. Like as in the, the general evidence was that you need to be exercising for up to 12 weeks before you see an improvement in bladder control. We genuinely have, were having like thousands of women telling us that they were seeing improvements in a week or two weeks. So we kept going back to our physiotherapist saying, how is this possible? Why are these women seeing this improvement so quickly when all the clinical data doesn't show this? And you know, one of the answers, it is, it is psychological and cognitive. And I think for me, given that my goal was to help women, um, I suppose I didn't feel that the traditional tools of running an RCT would really help me answer the question which I need to know for myself, which was if this was helping women. Mm. And the other thing I wanted to pull out was was this design element because you mentioned that there were these sort of over medicalized versions of I even you could call them devices that that were doing something similar. And as you say, you know, women having to, you know, get off their feet and lie in bed and do all these, as you say, heavily medicalized versions of this. That you've then gone completely the other direction and, and you've gone to sports and you've gone to wearables and you've yeah. really looked for a design that was more applicable to a, to a consumer. And actually that, that reminds me, someone said to me the other day, you know, what, what is a patient at the end of the day? A patient is just a person is just a consumer is just all that. So why should they suffer with, with poorly designed devices in medicine? And that's completely acceptable. Whereas on the consumer market, you've got these things that are purpose built so that people actually use it. You know, it shouldn't be that people have to differ in those two different places. So I, I can understand why design was, was just such a huge, huge part of this to, to make it successful. Yeah, and we definitely never thought about women that we're serving as, as patients. I mean, even when I was at Mary Stokes, we kind of switched the language, language from patients to clients so that everybody had it in their mindset that they were offering a service. Uh, but that was quite controversial within the health sector at that time. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, ultimately, you're asking somebody to take a product, and the main barrier to use is the fact that you have to insert it in your body. So there's, you know, there's, a, there's certain behaviors you're asking of your user in order to adopt your technology for better health outcomes. And I think this applies to a lot of areas, obviously, uh, in health. And when you're asking the individual to, to actively use your technology or take their medicine or whatever it is, then yeah, you need to make it as easy as possible for them. You need to think about it from their point of view. And obviously medical devices in general are not designed like that at all. Um, they, they don't, they're, they're just based on a utilitarian design and they're not thinking about um, what it's like for, for that individual. So the absolutely biggest space is, you know, radically redesigning all medical devices. That's, that's what, what I'd like to be doing or somebody needs to be doing because, you know, ultimately what we've done with our products is, yeah, show that you can take these neglected medical devices and turn them into lifestyle products that individuals actually like to use and more than like to use, they then like to talk to other people about using them. I mean, both our products, the, the breast pump and the LV trainer, because we've, managed to solve problems for women um, 
in ways that they weren't expecting and turn something that's kind of a negative issue for them with their health into something that's actually fun and cool. Um, that, that has an incredible result in terms of women just talking to other women and, and, and the uptake has been huge. Mm. So let's talk about the breast pump then. Um, obviously the second product that you guys have released um, and you've released it in a very, very interesting way. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So as soon as we launched the, the, the first product, the LB Trainer, which was um, three years ago, um, and we'll talk a bit about that launch, but uh, as soon as we launched it, obviously everybody's like, well, what's your next product? You know, for me, the passion project had been to solve pelvic floor health issues, uh, which are preventable and treatable, and we're still very much on that journey. Um, but then as I got into working in tech and working uh, on product design and health tech, really recognized, as I said, that, that actually you could have a big impact by um, redesigning a lot of these products, and particularly anything to do with women and intimate issues to do with womanhood. So um, that those kind of products have been particularly neglected, I think, because they're obviously a lot of taboo surrounding uh, intimate women's health. So yeah, and as, as, as we were working a lot with in the postnatal area, working with new mums, really it just sort of jumped out at us, which was the breast pump. You know, it's an essential medical device for new mums, both for for obviously for the newborn's health, but also for maternal health, also uh, very much fits with our mission around using tech for women to feel better about themselves. You know, it's a product that's intimate, you put it on the breast, and yet the technology that existed at the time, the old architecture was just, it's kind of barbaric, similar to public floor products. You know, noisy, big, cumbersome, you're tethered to a wall, and it looked like some kind of kickback from the 80s. So again, it was just like, oh my God, how, how and why are women putting up with such horrible tech? And again, similar to the first product, let's start with a blank piece of paper and completely redesign it. You know, how would, how, what would it look like? Um, what wouldn't the dream pump be that you could literally, it was so discreet, completely quiet, you just put in your bra, let go, and it does it for you. So that was kind of the ambition we came at and uh, developed around that. Yeah, so tell me about the launch of the LV Trainer. Yeah, so two years after coming up with the first concept, we finally had a product ready to, to launch, to, to, to get out there. And I think we, as I said, we didn't want to do it the traditional way. We didn't want to talk about negative health issues like bladder problems and prolapse because we just knew that women would turn away from that. Uh, and especially that the, the whole product was designed to be easy to use and fun, even the workouts have been gamified. So the way we launched it was really trying to throw it into a whole new space. Where should this issue really sit? Uh, rather than it being a health problem for patients to see a doctor, it should be around wellness and lifestyle. So we launched in boutique gyms. We launched on websites like Goop with Gwyneth Paltrow. We managed to really get quite a lot of celebrities just to be excited about it and a lot of influencers such as yoga instructors, gym instructors, um, and that really helped kind of set it in a very different space. You know, we launched on Vogue and in Tatler, wow. uh, which we never really thought would, would be the case with pelvic floor products. And that was really a great win for us on how to completely destigmatize this issue. Even getting it into retail, obviously in the past, it would have been sold in the pharmacy. We were like, no, we want to be in John Lewis and Selfridges. They thought we were mad. Uh, but, you know, you sort of keep banging on the doors and actually the press and the way women picked up on the issue and were quite happy to to take it on as a, as a feminist issue mm -hmm. as in this is about womanhood. This is about us feeling proud of our bodies. This is about inner strength, core strength, and all these messages that we'd experimented with were really taking off and obviously helped by the fact that there's generally quite a surge around 
the undergoing of womanhood. So that was very much the first product. You know, we were literally in, you know, I think we're the only medical device that's available on the NHS. It was also in the Oscars goodie bags. You know, the press has loved us. We've had incredible uh, press on the consumer side as a lifestyle issue uh, that needs to be talked about. So that's really helped with, with the education. And with breast pump as well, you know, we were developing this breast pump. We knew it was super important. We, we had the feedback from our users that this was really a game changer for women. Uh, in the sense that instead of spending four hours a day tethered to a wall, they could literally be out and about pumping. Um, so when we launched, we sort of had a, a dual strategy. One was, you know, just share it obviously with women. And actually the uptake on social has been completely unexpected as in women just sharing on Instagram, you know, look, I'm running a marathon. I'm using LB pump. I just got married, pumping down the aisle. Uh, I'm a doctor. I'm performing operation. I'm pumping. Like, there's been a huge amount of sharing around the second product, more than actually the trainer, which isn't a surprise given pelvic floor health is still quite taboo. But in terms of the actual big launch, you know, we also thought, well, breast pumps is just people think it's boring. Even investors are like, this is a boring category. So again, we're like, well, no, it shouldn't be boring. Like, just because you're a mum doesn't mean life's boring. And this is a product that, 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 should be fitting into your life and should be fun to use so yeah so we thought well let's do a fun launch so and i think again similar with pelvic floor health all these taboo issues in womanhood the easiest way to change attitudes and get conversation going is to switch it from something negative and something positive and actually to use a bit of humor so for us we had a, a double launch we um worked with an agency to create a video which is uh, all about basically four women in a barn uh, pumping with cows in the background talking about like, I don't want to feel like a cow. And again, it's just a sort of humorous uh, take on <laughs> the whole pumping experience for women. And at the same time, we launched London Fashion Week um, in a fashion show with Valeria Garcia, who was a, a new mom who's also a model. She just had a second baby and she walked down the catwalk and at the end revealed that she'd been pumping. And again, this was just a very different way to, to, to launch what is, you know, is a, is a medical device. And to acknowledge, you know, it's a medical device, but women are using it and women are mothers and they're still working and you know, we all have multifaceted lives. So, yeah, so that's where we launched it. And it was again, it was um, it was great. I mean, the press has really picked up on it. Women have picked up on it. And it's um, I, I think it's, you know, it's a, it has obviously a lot of implications and potential, I think, for other areas of health, particularly which require some kind of behavior change. There were some enormous breasts placed on roofs around London as well, wasn't there? I think that was you guys. Oh, you like the boobs more than the catwalk. I forgot about the boobs. <laughs> <laughs> no, no I'm, yeah, we have a great team who, uh, yeah, young, always were thinking like, how can we be sparking the conversation? How can we, you know, similar with breast pumps, like women, it's, it's a taboo issue. Women don't feel confident breastfeeding and breast pumping in, in public. And this has ramifications for health. It's not just a, a confidence and convenience issue. You know, more than 80% of new mums wish that they had given breast milk for longer to their babies, but, but, but gave up too early. So for us, yeah, it's about bringing things out, the stigma, bringing things out into the public, um, doing it in a fun way. So uh, for Mother's Day in the UK, we launched four huge inflatable breasts, different colours, shapes, everything, sizes across London uh, on top of buildings to kind of, again, highlight the importance to free the feed and breaking the taboos around um, breastfeeding and breast pumping. Yeah, it got my attention. Um, <laughs> I mean, my friend complained that I put it above his daughter's school. He's like, I'm <laughs> above my daughter's school. I'm like, well, but it's a normal yeah. part of the anatomy and people need to be talking about it. That's the whole point, right? Exactly. 
Um, and it comes back to this thing, right, about, about normalizing everything. And even through that launch, even through, you know, the launch of the different products, it's, it's you just trying to normalize things and, yeah, yeah creating a demand, creating the market, okay, fine from business perspective, but actually it's creating that impact amongst people to, they, they feel empowered to not only get these devices and help themselves, but then to talk about it with other people and actually spread that. Um, spread that impact even further, which I think is incredible. And, and I was just thinking, technology is ultimately technology is only ever a tool, right? It's exactly, tool, exactly. Right? And yeah. I think I think it's really interesting. This is almost representative of a sort of a wider movement that you're helping to innovate here, because we talk all the time, don't we, about things in healthcare being moved closer to the community, and it's sort of banded around in in more of the healthcare world. In, the, in meaning sort of moving things from hospitals to GP practices yeah. and then from GP practices into community organizations and things like that. And, you know, it's a bit more of a sterile way to think about it. But actually what you guys have done from a consumer perspective is actually you've taken this heavy medicalized device, which did exist in that world, but you've brought it to, towards the community in a completely different way in the fact that you've put it in gyms and you put it in beauty salons. And it's a completely different way of thinking about this idea of moving things into the community, which I think, yeah, I was just thinking then, I think that's a really interesting innovation in this entire space. And I imagine that will be trailblazing for quite a few people to do things similar. Thank you. Yeah, innovative or crazy. I mean, yeah, I didn't... Well, it's both. I mean, it, it, it's right. definitely both. The product was different, the way I wanted to change the language. I wanted to change the way we said it, the way we think about it. You have to change. We sort of try to change everything. Um, but yeah, ultimately, that, that is what it comes down to. And I actually think, looking, thinking back, actually, Mary Stokes, again, was probably had more influence than I realized this. And it was constantly about just giving people in very rural areas and very remote countries, like in, you know, in Madagascar or Sierra Leone where I was working and, and bringing those services to the community um, and sort of bypassing government because in those countries, governments, uh, you know, you just wouldn't be able to, to reach those people otherwise. Mm. And I'm obviously definitely not trying to bypass government. You know, we're working closely with the NHS here in the UK, but it is recognizing that, yeah, the NHS is, is overstretched. There are some huge systemic challenges facing the NHS in this country, as we know the aging population um, and also the budget, budgetary issues. So the reality is, if we look at the next 10 years, there will, it's difficult to see how the NHS will be able to support innovation at, at a rate needed, particularly in the prevention side. So mm. I think that's the big space, I think, around personal health uh, and combine that with the trend that individuals are also more willing now to pay out of pocket for for their own health and wellness and, exactly. and more willing to to adopt new behaviors new technologies that's the other positive flip side to to some of the constraints that the nhs is facing exactly because it prevents them ever having to access those services hopefully as well it yeah. allows them to you know do that prevention bit but then also to do the bit on top which is actually optimizing their health so that they can not only be safe from a healthcare perspective but actually they can live more optimal lives because yeah. they're you know all those different things that they would probably never go to the nhs for but actually there's these other conditions that they can prevent and, and improve and change and all these different things which is why i think the consumer market in healthcare in the uk is growing so quickly. I think it, it is it is such an important market for the overall health of the NHS, if you will, because of the reasons that you you exactly just said. Everything's overstretched, and there's this there's this move to move things in the community, but there's a a real kind of discrepancy into how we actually do that. And and I think unless we really 
take stock of where we actually are and it's nobody trying to privatize the nhs or anything ludicrous like that it's more it's more that people are just opening their eyes to the fact that okay people are actually buying stuff to keep them healthy we're buying gym memberships we're buying um all these different things and fitbits and wear other wearables and this sort of stuff so why can't we just open that conversation to more of these things that would otherwise mean you're having this horribly medicalized procedure or device, you know, inserted into your body. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and I think public health epitomizes that that situation more than anything in the sense that you know women don't present to the GP for at least five years. Exactly. Public health, and you know, most of the urogynecologists I've talked to, um, you know, they say that by the time a woman presents, they already need to have surgery, and it's almost too late to to, to be suggesting exercise at that point. So we know prevention works. There's a clear economic case. You know, it's very simple to, to work out what the cost-benefit analysis is and the ROI. But at the same time, the NHS isn't actually that well positioned to reach women uh, earlier in their journey. So you're absolutely right. That's where tech comes in, and um, you know, it's, it's it's really exciting the the, mm. um, the the swing that we're seeing towards prevention and, and enhancement. So yeah, so just moving us on slightly then. So I'd like to talk about the growth of the company because obviously I've seen recently you've done, was it $46 million Series B? Um, I've heard the 100K innovate right at the start and I know of that bit right at the end, but could you fill that journey in for me in terms of the growth of the company? Yeah, so um, we started off the company when we wanted 100K. I was quite naive. I thought my first investor was like, how much is it going to cost? I thought, oh, 200,000 pounds. It's going to take a year. <laughs> no idea how much it costs to bring really you know new innovative health tech to market um especially highly regulated but um so obviously yeah, it cost a lot more than i thought it was going to cost but really at the beginning i didn't even try to raise institutional funding like vc funding um because the feedback was really clear which was well you guys are crazy but also you know we needed some more proof points we needed to have launched product uh we obviously knew that there's generally a target before you raise your series a around raising these um a million dollars on revenue, uh, but really had to get the, the product out. So for the early days, the first few years, really relied on angel funding. But that here in the UK was was really great because there are great tax breaks for angel investors. So um, yeah, I'm not saying it was easy to raise that money, but it's quite a binary issue as in if an investor doesn't really get pelvic floor or women's health, then um, they won't even take a meeting with you. Mm. But the good news is, you know, the, 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 the analysis and the statistics were all there. You know, the fact that the adult sanitary pad market is more than 15 billion a year, that one three women are suffering from this preventable problem. So yeah, I suppose I discovered that I have new superpowers as a salesperson. I think as a founder, that's the key thing we all need to learn to do mm -hmm. is be better at, at sales. Um, which was kind of new for me, given I come from academia. So yeah, so in short, basically raised a few million from angel investors. Off the back of that, you know, really bootstrapping, managed to get the product out. But obviously, the problem with medical devices, you can't cut corners, you can't bootstrap. So you know, most of the focus was on the R and D side, and then again, really bootstrapping on the marketing. They managed to get the product out, managed to get to break even within six months, get two million dollars revenue, and off the back of that, raised um, money from Octopus which has really been a, a great investor for us. So they're the largest VCT in Europe. And they were looking to get into IoT and health tech, but you know the hardware proposition, putting aside the fact that it's women's health and intimate women's health issues, um, you know, the hardware proposition is, is difficult for institutional investors because obviously the economics are so different to a pure digital play startup. But I think we've really proved ourselves, and that was really thanks a lot. I forgot to mention, but um, to Alex Asali, who came in really quite early on as my co-founder, 
and Alex had created Jawbone and built that up and really was able to bring his immense knowledge and expertise around how to build a hardware business and, and make sure that you get the, the economics all right. Um, so we really just stayed focused on that. Off the back of the first product, we raised £5 million, which was to continue to increase market access for, for trainer and start launching the pump. Um, and again, you know, just for two years, which is, I think, how long it takes to really redesign a product. And I've been told that's pretty quick for a medical device. Uh, but for two years, just stayed very focused on bringing out the pump. And then as uh, we talked about earlier, launched the pump late last year. Uh, and it's been... The, the take up on the pump has just been amazing. It's just been really, really fast, like much faster than we expected, in fact. So if anything right now, we're struggling to, to keep up with production. But there's also been something which we had hoped would happen in theory, and uh, it's been wonderful to see actually happen, which is because the kind of halo effect on the pump, but also because the pump is a much easier product to talk about than the pelvic floor trainer, uh, what we're seeing is a, an amazingly positive impact on trainer sales as well. So much faster traction as new mums are buying the pump and then realize they also need to work on their pelvic floor. Um, so we're seeing, yeah, a strong uplift on both of those. Um, and off the back of kind of really very fast growth in the last six months, we've just raised our series B. So yeah, $42 million, which is an amazing milestone for us as a company. Obviously it means we're going from a team of four engineers to 20 engineers, which means, you know, we're not just developing one product and, Every two years, we can start developing products in parallel. Uh, but also, more importantly, I think it's an important milestone for what is now known as this emerging femtech uh, sector, you know, technology focused on women's health. Because up till now, funding raised in this area has been, you know, low relative to, to other sectors. So I think it, it really is an important mark that, that it's finally been taken seriously by investors, which is amazing and completely different to even just four years ago <laughs> and that is amazing and congratulations um so two more questions for me for me then i guess relating to that what you just said so first one is what's the future for you what's the future for tanya what's the future for elvi um and the second question is what's the future for the femtech space as you see it well three questions what me personally the company and femtech yeah that <laughs> is three yeah you're right <laughs> yeah. i know i'm thinking um because i think about it right? i've thrown myself into raising this money the last year and i'm like gosh we're a bigger company what do i do i need to think about this um but uh for me personally i realized something i didn't talk about so openly before because i think when you're trying to raise money you just need to be putting forward the commercial proposition but with the series b we took our first money from an impact fund from lgt impact and i'm really proud of bringing them on board and do think this is the future and something i want to spend more time thinking about and how i can promote which is the idea of a double bottom line so how you can have uh, investment funds like lgt impact or companies like lv where there's obviously a strong focus on financial returns but how we can also be be looking at uh, impact and societal uh, sense as well. So that's that's something I think that we're part of a movement and outside of femtech, which I'm, you know, excited. That I think it's going to be the, the very much the future for for investing. Um, in terms of LV, everyone's just working like crazy. We're growing mm -hmm. a team from 35 to 80 this year. As I said, uh, engineering team is really scaling up. We're opening our first office in the US. We have a lot of ideas for new products. We're just um, getting going on those. So so watch that space. And third, yeah, Femtech, yeah, obviously I, I'm, I'm an absolute evangelist and believer. It's, it's huge. It's really exciting. I think it's amazing seeing different startups working at, uh, diff on different issues in very different ways, 
So we're seeing a lot of innovation around menstruation, less, you know, not so much on the tech side there, it's more consumer products innovations, maybe organic tampons or switching to moon cup. We're beginning to hear more about uh, menopause, not seeing too much happen there yet. Exciting things happening in hormonal tracking. So that's a really important big space, really exciting. So I do think, uh, you know, all the stars point to, to this being a, a big uh, trend in the next couple of years, especially given the bigger societal cultural changes. After we sort out intimate women's health issues, though, I do think we need to look at male men's health. I think actually when it comes to taboo issues uh, in health, I think men are even worse talking about it than women. So um, I, I, I would expect to see some changes there. And we are actually beginning to see a kind of untabooing around certain male issues, although at the moment seems to be focused mostly on balding and erectile dysfunction. But I don't know if you've been on the tube recently, there's a lot of big adverts and there's been big big raises for companies focusing on, on men's health as well. Mm. And in fact, yeah, I had, um, I had uh, Guillaume from Octopus um, on ah. the podcast. Yeah. A few, a few couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah. Talking a lot about this, about the, the taboo space that they're looking at. And um, another one of Octopus's um, investee companies is going to come on the podcast in a f- couple of weeks time as well. Again, looking at that, that male uh, side of things as well. And I completely agree. It's, it's a space that absolutely needs to, um, destigmatize i guess through everything that we've talked about on this podcast so far of of normalizing things to create demand and create markets to then actually feed product into to then create the impact necessary and i i totally agree um i think octopus are also a good thing with with their investment focus in that area yeah um, I mean, you know it was um two and a half years ago so other people said my god they took a big risk with lv um and they did but um you know hopefully now it's shown yeah, that not only is it obviously needed from a, uh, from a health perspective, but it's, and it, we've shown through LV that it's also an exciting commercial opportunity because the demand is there. It's just, it's been neglected. Mm. And I think it is about strategy as well to make sure that you access that demand as, as, you've, as you've done very well. You know, you've taken some definitive steps in building this company that you're absolutely right, have seemed very risky and very new. Uh, the way that you've marketed it, the way that you launched it, you know, the way that you've talked about it publicly and, and done these stunts and things. I think it's, it is a very risky way that you've done it, but you've, you've managed to access that enormous demand that actually is and, and always has been there. And I think you've enabled people to, to buy this as much as you've actually given them the device to buy, if you know what I mean. I think that, that, that double-sided strategy is extremely important in, in a taboo area. Um, and I, yeah, I, th- I think if, if, if that is a blueprint that, that you've made that you're happy to share, I'm sure a lot of people are going to, um, going to, going to copy you down those routes. Um, yeah, I think I it's a really so. good blueprint. Okay. I mean, yeah, that's what we need. It, it's not just for women's health. Like I said, it's, it's, as you said, there's so many taboo issues in, in health that, that we need to, to change. And it's global, as you said, right? Because yes, we can we can do all this in the Western world, but as your focus personally is now moving on to, you know, how do we actually create this impact more broadly? Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, if, if, if it starts in the Western world and we can, you know, change the conversation here, then it will free up people's time and, and like yourself to, to work on these things more globally, but actually we'll find ways of doing that more, uh, more globally. And I think that's, again, extremely important. And I imagine something you're extremely passionate about as well. 
absolutely so tanya i mean so this has been awesome the way that we end these podcasts tanya is um i hand back over to you to just summarize a little bit about yourself a little bit about lv um a little bit about the products maybe and then just to um, finish with any asks that you've got of our audience I'm Tanya Bowler and I started LV five years ago. Our ambition is to be the first ever women's health tech brand. We're launching different connected health and wellness products for women. Our most recent product was the world's first silent, smart, wearable breast pump. And before that, we launched LV Trainer, which is the first ever smart biofeedback device for women to do their pelvic floor exercises, which is available on the NHS and across many different retail outlets as well. We've recently raised our Series B, uh, which was $42 million. We're expanding the team quickly from 30 to 100 as we realize our ambition to launch four new connected devices in the next two years. So big shout out to anybody who is excited about our mission to completely change women's health through technology. Uh, we're building the team here in London, but we'll also be hiring in New York. So looking for our first US hires. So I know this podcast has a big global reach. So um, please get in touch if this might be of interest. Cool. And how do people get in touch with you if they want to contact someone at LV? Yeah, just email us at questions at lv.com or go to our website.